Chapter Seven of Whispering Smith by Frank Spearman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven in Marion's Shop. In Boney Street, Medicine Bend, stands an early day row of one story buildings. They once made up a prosperous block which had long since fallen into the decay of paintless days. There is in Boney Street a livery stable, a second-hand store, a laundry, a bakery, a moribund grocery, and a bicycle shop, and at the time of this story there was also Marion Sinclair's millinery shop. But the better class of Medicine Bend business, such as the gambling houses, saloons, pawn shops, restaurants, barber shops, and those sensitive, clean-shaven, and alert establishments known as gents' stores, had deserted Boney Street for many years. Bats fly in the dark of Boney Street, while Front Street, at the same hour, is a blaze of electricity and frontier hilarity. The millinery store stood next to the corner of Fort Street. The lot lay in an L, and at the rear of the store the first owner had built a small connecting cottage to live in. This faced on Fort Street so that Marion had her shop and living rooms communicating, and yet apart. The store building is still pointed out as the former shop of Marion Sinclair, where George MacLeod boarded when the Crawling Stone Line was built where Whispering Smith might often have been seen, where Sinclair himself was last seen alive in Medicine Bend, where Dixie Dunning's horse dragged her senseless one wild mountain night, and where, indeed, for a time, the affairs of the whole mountain division seemed to tangle in very hard knots. As to the millinery business, it was never, after Marion bought the shop, more than moderately successful. The demand that existed in Medicine Bend for red hats of the picture sort Marion declined to recognize. For customers who sought these, she turned out hats of somber coloring calculated to inspire gloom rather than revelry, and she naturally failed to hold what might be termed the miscellaneous business. But after Dixie Dunning of the Stone Ranch, fresh from the convent, rode into the shop, or if not into it, nearly so, and gliding through the door ordered a hat out of hand marion always had some business all medicine bend knew dixie dunning who dressed stunningly rode famously and was so winningly democratic that half the town never called her anything at a distance but dixie the first hat was a small affair but haughty the materials were unheard of in Marion's stock and had to be sent for. Marion's arrangement with the jobbing houses always had a COD complexion. The jobbers maintained that this saved bookkeeping, and Marion, who of course never knew any better, paid the double express charges like a lamb. She acted, too, as bankers for the other impecunious tradespeople in the block and as this included nearly all of them she was often pressed for funds herself MacLeod undertook sometimes to intervene and straightened out her millinery affairs one evening he went so far as to attempt an inventory of her stock and some schedule of her accounts but marion with the front shop curtains closely drawn and MacLeod perspiring on a stepladder 
inspecting boxes of feathers and asking stern questions, would look so pathetically sweet and helpless when she tried to recall what things cost that MacLeod could not be angry with her. Indeed, the pretty eyes behind the patient spectacles would disarm anyone. In the end, he took inventory on the basis of the retail prices, dividing it afterward by five, as Marion estimated the average profit in the business at five hundred percent, this being what the woman she bought out had told her. How then, MacLeod asked himself, could Marion be normally hard-pressed for money? He talked to her learnedly about fixed charges, but even these seemed difficult to arrive at. There was no rent, because the building belonged to the railroad company, and when the real estate and taxman came around and talked to MacLeod about rent for the Boney Street property, MacLeod told him to chase himself. There was no insurance, because no one would dream of insuring Marion's stock boxes. There were no bills payable, because no traveling man would advise a line of credit to an inexperienced and, what was worse, an unpractical milliner. Marion did her own trimming, so there were no salaries except to Katie Dunsing. It puzzled MacLeod to find the leak. How could he know that Marion was keeping nearly all the blocks supplied with funds? So MacLeod continued to raise the price of his table board, and, though Marion insisted he was paying her too much, held that he must be eating her out of house and home. In her dining-room, which connected through a curtained door with the shop, MacLeod sat one day alone, eating his dinner. Marion was in front, serving a customer. MacLeod heard voices in the shop, but gave no heed, till a man walked through the curtained doorway, and he saw Mary Sinclair standing before him. The stormy interview with Callahan and Blood at the Wickiup had taken place just a week before, and MacLeod, after what Sinclair had then threatened, though not prepared, felt as he saw him that anything might occur. MacLeod, being in possession of the little room, however, the initiative fell on Sinclair, who, looking his best, snatched his hat from his head and bowed ironically. "'My mistake,' he said, blandly. "'I'm right in,' returned MacLeod, not knowing whether Marion had a possible hand in her husband's unexpected appearance. "'Do you want to see me?' "'I don't,' smiled Sinclair. "'And to be perfectly frank,' he added with studied consideration, "'I wish to God I never had seen you.' "'Well, you've thrown me, MacLeod. "'You've thrown yourself, haven't you, Mary?' from your point of view of course but macleod this is a small country for two points of view do you want to get out of it or do you want me to the country suits me sinclair no man that has ever played me dirt can stay here while i stay sinclair with a hand on the portiere was moving from the doorway into the room macleod in a leisurely way rose though with a slightly flushed face and at that juncture Marion ran into the room and spoke abruptly. "'Here's the silk, Mr. Sinclair,' she exclaimed, handing to him a package she had not finished wrapping. "'I meant you to wait in the other room.' "'It was an accidental intrusion,' returned Sinclair, maintaining his irony. "'I have apologized, and Mr. MacLeod and I understand one another better than ever.' 
"'Please say to Miss Dunning,' continued Marion, nervous and insistent, "'that the band for her riding-hat hasn't come yet, but it should be here to-morrow.' As she spoke, MacLeod leaned across the table, resolved to take advantage of the opening if it cost him his life. "'And by the way, Mr. Sinclair, Miss Dunning wished me to say to you that the lovely bay colt you sent her had sprung his shoulder badly. The hind shoulder, I think. But they're doing everything possible for it, and they think it will make a great horse.' Sinclair's snort at the information was a marvel of indecision. Was he being made fun of? Should he draw and end it? But Marion faced him resolutely as he stood and talking in the most businesslike way she backed him out of the room and to the shop door balked at his opportunity he retreated stubbornly but with the utmost politeness and left with a grin lashing his tail so to speak coming back marion tried to hide her uneasiness under even tones to macleod i'm sorry he disturbed you i was attending to a customer and had to ask him to wait a moment don't apologize for having a customer he lives over beyond the stone ranch you know and is taking some things out for the dunnings to-day he likes an excuse to come in here because it annoys me finish your dinner mr macleod thank you i'm done but you haven't eaten anything isn't your steak right it's fine but that man well you know how i like him and how he likes me I'll content myself with digesting my temper. End of chapter 7